we will continue with our series from 1 Peter and we'll continue 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 4 and have that ready as we work our way through this very important portion of Scripture which is very fitting for our day today and I believe for the weeks, months and years to come shortly, very shortly. Father, we pray that indeed as we have just sung, that you may speak to us through your word. And that you may enable us to live a godly life that pleases you. A life, Lord, of godliness, with hope and joy for the glory and praise of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend and we were talking about re- events in recent years and not just the last two years, but events that have changed and transformed uh, and have led to the point where we're in, in our Western democracy. Our Western democracy as we know it is incredibly fragile. And the West as we know it will soon collapse. We see early signs of that collapse and it will soon collapse. We've seen it in history and it will come tumbling down. Progressive ideas, the breaking down of the family unit, the redefinition of marriage, the active promotion of sodomy, or homosexuality and its uh, branches, transsexualism and so on. The mass killing of babies in the womb. These are telltale signs. And the West as we know it will soon collapse. And I believe that many of us will leave to witness that. But what are we to do in the, as we face major collapse or catastrophic events through history? Well, 1 Peter is very instructive here. The Christians in the time of Peter were um, witnessing or were about to witness the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as Jesus had prophesied. This would have been a cataclysmic event for the believers at that time. Yet before that, Emperor Nero was already bringing persecution to the land and persecution was increasing against believers because they were refusing to say Caesar is Lord. They were insisting in saying, Jesus is Lord. And Nero began a fierce persecution. The beginning of ten persecutions that happened over a period of a few hundred years. 
10 intense persecutions. And then the Roman mighty Roman Empire came tumbling down and Christ's kingdom remained standing. Christianity remained. Years later, the persecution began with the within the established church. The church became compromised. The Roman Catholic Church established the Inquisition. They would call it the Holy Inquisition. And believers, many believers in Jesus Christ were martyred as they were condemned by the Inquisition. Yet, Christ's kingdom remained standing through the period of the Reformation. If you fast forward to our day today, many will be surprised to hear what John MacArthur calls the, or what he says, it is believed that more followers of Christ were martyred in the past 20th century alone than in previous 19th centuries before that. Christian persecution was greater in the 20th century and many more Christians died than in the 19th centuries combined. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes knocking on our door. Christ's kingdom nevertheless flourishes and will continue to move forward despite persecution and despite nations or kingdoms or empires tumbling down. But how should we as believers respond to suffering? Well, by looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, we will consider three words. These three words are godliness, hope, and joy. Godliness in the midst of persecution. Hope, a future living hope in the midst of suffering. And joy in the midst of the affliction. The believers to whom Paul is writing are suffering. As I said earlier, they were suffering because they were refusing to say that Caesar is Lord. They were insisting that Jesus Christ is Lord. That led to a persecution to believers. In the previous chapter, chapter 3, we saw that Peter is telling them that they are associated with Christ. They are united with Christ who also suffered himself. He's told them in chapter 3 that they are united with Christ and a picture of that union with Christ is baptism. When believers were baptized, they were baptized into Christ symbolizing the death with Jesus. And when they came back from the waters, it symbolizes that resurrection with Jesus Christ. So Peter tells them in the previous chapter that they are united with Christ who suffered for them on the cross. These Christians, because of their union with Christ, have died to sin. Now, because Jesus suffered and died on their behalf, they are now to consider themselves dead to a sinful living. Why? 
Because a life in sin is incompatible with our union with Christ. A life in sin is incompatible with their union with Jesus Christ. So how are these believers living in the midst of a hostile world? Read there in verse 1, chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. That Greek word, arm yourselves, is a word that um, uh, refers to arming with heavy armor. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Because Jesus died to save sinners, sinners are not to live in a life that is inconsistent with that which Christ came to die for them. They are not to live in sin. When Christ died, believers died with him. When Christ rose again from the dead, believers rose again with Jesus Christ to a newness of life. The old life has passed away. The new life is here. So he tells them, live alive and arm yourselves with that way of thinking. Think that way. You've died to sin in Christ. You're now alive to newness of life. In Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, he's saying, your past is in the past. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. A life in sin is incompatible with our union with Christ. I wonder if you have walked to Ryer's Chapel uh, Sunday afternoons. If you haven't, I'll invite you to come along this afternoon and join us at four o'clock. And if you park by the community hall... And as you pass the Duke of Wellington, and as you walk towards the chapel, towards your left, you will see an old telephone box. One of those iconic red telephone boxes. But this telephone box hasn't got a telephone in there. This telephone box has been repurposed. Its new purpose is, anyone wants to have a guess? It's a library. So you can pop round and open the door and pick a book. (laughs) Read it, put it back. Artists need a few Christian literature as well. Absolutely. But it's repurposed. It had a previous purpose, but now it has a new purpose. Christians have been repurposed, as it were, repurposed in Jesus Christ. Christians used to be enslaved to sin, but they are now alive in Jesus Christ. They have died with Christ when Christ died. Died, and they're now alive in Jesus Christ. We have been set apart to a new life, to a new living for the glory of God. And in the midst of suffering, believers ought to live a life of godliness. But let me ask you 
Is that your way of thinking? Have you armed yourself with that way of thinking? Have you made it your business to arm yourself in the, in, in the same way that Jesus Christ lived and thought that he died for us? Or are you still persevering in your old way in sinful living? If you are, stop. Turn. A believer's life is a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith from the very moment that he became a Christian. And repentance and faith for every single day of one's life. Godliness is what the Lord calls us to. You've been repurposed in Christ. You now belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to your Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, living in sensuality and lust is the way that we used to live. We used to live in that way in the past, but it's no more, no longer. So, Why do you allow the sensual images to be displayed and projected on your TV screen or your monitor or even on your phone? A life of sensuality is inconsistent with that which Christ has already done for believers. Christians are dead to sin. And then there's living in drunkenness. But drunkenness is not just limited to alcohol abuse. Drunkenness can also be extended to abuse, substance abuse of any source. When we lose control to a substance, we are enslaved to that substance. But believers are not enslaved to any substance. Believers are alive in Jesus Christ. Alive, in intoxication, is how we used to live. But our lives has been repurposed in Jesus Christ. Why then do you persevere in living a life of, of, of being on the edge and, 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 and trying to get that, that kick or living in the high? We've died to sin. And then there's living in idolatry. And living in idolatry is not just limited to, to worshipping images or idols as the Romans used to do or the Greeks. Living in idolatry is also worshipping anything else that is not God, the true and living God. But we used to worship all sorts of things before coming to Christ, didn't we? But that, that is no more. Now we've come before the living God, the true and living God. So why then do you persevere in living in a life of idolatry? Idolatry in the pursuit of money. Being enslaved to that, to, to money. Being enslaved to a desire for fame. Perhaps a desire for status or, or even a pleasure of food. Enslaved to pleasure or enslaved to work. Now work is good. Work is a good thing, but work can become a God thing. And when we use 
the time that God has given us to worship God. For example, today, the Lord's Day. And we intentionally use that to worship other things. That is idolatry, my friend. And is idolatry not only within what, what you use in your time on a Lord's Day, but even within the church, there's a lot of idolatry going on as well. Even within the church, worshipping their pastor, the worship leader or what have you. Or someone else. Or the church. Or the organisation. Believers are called to live a life of godliness in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. Why? Because believers have been changed by God. So how are we to live in the midst of affliction? In godliness. That is our first word. Godliness. But there is a second word. Hope. Now let me ask you. What happens to non-Christians when Christians are changed by God? How do they respond when they see Christians changed and, and, and transformed by, by God? Peter knows unbelievers hate it. They hate it. They, they loathe it. They don't like it when their friends don't join them in their old ways, in their old wild ways, in their old wild and destructive ways. They hate it, so they malign and they slander believers for their faith. Look at there in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But Peter reminds believers what lies in the future. There is a future hope that believers have and that, that future hope is the Lord will return in judgment. Look at there in verse 5. But they will give an account, or they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is the reason why Peter and his friends preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why they go on proclaiming so that people may hear that they need to repent from their sin because God's judgment is coming upon them. And they must repent from the sin and turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith. God's judgment is looming. And there is a sense in which death in itself is God's judgment for, for people today. Even Christians and, and even their Christian friends who, who, who died were, in a sense, judged in the flesh. But they will receive an eternal reward. Look at there in verse 6. It says about those who have died. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Believers who died. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Believers have a help. Believers have a living help. And so Peter reminds them that the end is near. The end is coming close. And, and it is near for all, but it was nearer for them in the sense that the destruction of the temple was looming. It was about to come in 70 AD as Jesus Christ prophesied. These Christians, however, were holding on to the eternal reward that was promised in Jesus Christ. And Peter knows that if they keep their mind in the future, if they, if they, if they keep their 
eyes in what is about to come, in what Christ's return will bring. He knows that their way of living will be impacted. He knows that it will make a big difference in the way they live. It will make a big difference in the way they behave. It will make a big difference in their relationships. And it will make a big difference in their service. Look at there in verse 7. It will make a big difference to their behaviour and even their prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He calls believers to be self-controlled and sober-minded. The future coming of glory not only will change the way they they behave, but it will also change the way that they they relate with one another. Look at there in verse 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another without grumbling. As each has received a... I've skipped, sorry, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I think this is so important and very telling. Why is it that Peter is asking believers to be hospitable in the midst of affliction and difficulty? That, that is quite interesting. Rather than them focusing on, on, on avoiding persecution, he's telling them, Be hospitable. Open your doors. Open your house. Welcome the needy. Welcome even strangers. To to live a life of hospitality means that it's not easy. When you open your doors and, and provide food for someone else, but not only food, but also allow them to sleep overnight on your your property. That, That is a hard thing. It is hard. But he's asking believers to have that way of thinking. To think of the future hope so that they may open their doors. And elsewhere we find in the Bible, unawares believers may have entertained angels like Abraham did when he received the angels back then. We're called to to live a life of hospitality. What if the state says, no indoor mixing? Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So live a life of hospitality. Welcome the needy. Welcome the afflicted. Welcome the tired. Open your home. Living with hope will not only make a difference with their behaviour and their relationships, living with hope will make a difference in their service. Look at there in verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As Good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the ones who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. A life of hope will change the way we, we live even today. Do you remember some years ago I told you the story of Annette when she was just a little girl? She was well behaved at a conference and I promised her that she would, she would have a present, a gift, a surprise. Her eyes gleamed with hope. She was really daddy. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you a surprise. 
when are you going to get it? T- tomorrow. I'll go and buy it tomorrow. Well, she was in her best behavior that day. And not only that, it was five o'clock in the morning, the very next morning, and she was by my bedside. Dad, are you going to buy me the present? What? Yes, and I will get you the present. You see, living in hope changes the way we see things and the way we behave and the way we live here and now. Living in hope of the future promises will make a huge difference today. And let me ask you, are you living in light of the future promises? Does it show by the way you behave? Self-controlled and sober-minded. If not, could that be the reason why you haven't got answered prayers? Could that be the reason why the Lord is not answering your prayers? Do you seek above all things to love others earnestly? Other believers earnestly, primarily? Do you seek to be hospitable to others and open your house and be welcoming to others? Or are you persisting in living self-centered lives? Are you using your gifts for the edification of the church? You see, every believer is gifted by God. And every believer ought to use his gifts for the edification of the body. And there are many gifts and God gives to whomever he pleases. And among those gifts are gifts of administration, gifts of teaching and so on. And we ought to use those gifts for the edification of the body. Are you using those gifts? If not, make yourself ready and available. There are plenty of things that need to be done for a church to run. From the practical aspect of life that your pastor can't do everything practical. In fact, according to the book of Acts 9, they shouldn't be doing practical stuff. They should be devoting time for prayer and the studying or the preaching of God's word. Can you use your gifts for the edification or are you too self-centered trying to gain more and have more and grow more in your own self Selfish life. Are you living in hope? Living a hope-filled life. Suffering believers have a future hope. So we've seen two words. We've seen godliness on the one side. And we've seen hope. And there's a third word which is joy. Now even though the believers at the time of Peter were were, were, were having a living hope, they were not really living a life that were glamorous on this earth. For, their, for them, suffering was part and parcel of their sharing with Jesus Christ. In fact, suffering is the road to eternal life. Jesus walked through that path. We who are united with him will walk and are walking And if we're not, we will, through that path. Suffering is the norm for the life of a believer. That's why Peter doesn't want them to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon them to test them, as if something strange were happening to them. He wants them to know that this is not a strange thing. This is the norm. This will happen. Look at verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But 
Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. (coughs) But he doesn't want believers to suffer for doing wicked things. He doesn't want them to suffer as, 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 as thieves or as, 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 as evil people. God plays the state to punish evil and reward good. And if Christians, even Christians, do evil, they will suffer. And Peter doesn't want them to suffer for that reason. Look at verse 15. But let no one of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, be joyful, rejoice, glorify God. You see, my friends, suffering has a purifying effect. What suffering does to the church is that it separates those who are genuinely in Christ and those who, who are not. Suddenly when persecution comes and you're faced with the prospect of, you need to say Caesar is Lord, or you need to pinch some incense. Many would rationalize and say, well, I'm still worshipping the Lord and, and it's just a little bit of incense. I mean, let's just, let's just do it because, I mean, we have to be pragmatic, you see. We need to see these things in a, in a broad way. We're still loving the Lord. We try to rationalize our way out of suffering. But suffering has a purifying effect. Those who are genuine believers will persevere and those who aren't will fall away. So Peter tells them that in that sense, God is already bringing judgment. God is already separating the genuine from the counterfeit. And that is a reason for joy. Believers have to rejoice in knowing that God is achieving his purposes even through the, in the midst of suffering in the here and now. In, in, in a sense, God is walking through his temple. As Ezekiel reminds us of Malachi chapter 3, the Lord is walking through his temple and judgment is already coming through the house of God, through the house of the Lord. Who is the temple? God's people, the church. The household of God and the Lord is walking in their midst. Look at there, verse 17 and 18. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? If God's people need purifying, imagine what's in store for those who are not in Christ. Verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What happens when you add vinegar to milk? Has anyone done it? Yes? Uh, yes, the milk becomes disgusting. Yes, not, not pretty. Well, if you add vinegar and you perhaps increase the heat, you will see it curdles. 
and it curdles quicker when the heat is turned up. It's a chemical reaction and it just separates and it curdles. And you can use the curdle as a filling or as perhaps as a base for preparing cheese and all these uh, uh, culinary wonders. But vinegar causes the, 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 the reaction of separation within the milk. Suffering and persecution have the same effect within the church. It separates. When heat of suffering is turned up, a separation occurs. Genuine believers are manifested and the counterfeit are exposed. So, Christians are to rejoice. They are to rejoice because the Lord is with them even in the midst of suffering. They, have ident- they are identified with Christ who suffered. And when they suffer, they're in the Lord. And when they suffer, the Lord is causing a separation within the church. So, we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice because we have a future hope that is coming. So believers, rejoice. Rejoice when injustices come your way in the name of Christ or because you believe in Christ. Rejoice when people revile you or they mock you for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice. Rejoice when they revile you for not following the new morality of the day in which we live. Rejoice when evil is done against you for doing what is good. Christians are to rejoice and they are to rejoice while entrusting themselves to the Lord who is powerful and control all things. Every event in history, even as they go through suffering. Look at verse 19 as we close. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Notice. He says to God's will. Read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This one verse, the last verse of chapter 4, sums up the whole book of 1 Peter. God is achieving his purposes through suffering. God governs and controls everything that happens and everything that is occurring in our day to day. He is our creator. And because he is our creator and he is our father, we can entrust ourselves to him. Even when we cannot understand why things are going the way they're going. Even when we have no control of the events in history, the Lord is in control. And nations rise, but nations will fall while the church of Jesus Christ remains standing firm until Jesus Christ return. This week we were talking about empires at home. We recalled Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed in Daniel chapter 2 an image, a statue with a head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And at the bottom, iron mixed with clay. 
But then he saw so a big rock cut not by human hands that came and destroyed that image and tumbled down. Daniel tells us that the head is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire has come and gone. In a sense, the Babylonian Empire is still in a comatose state today. The old Leviathan is still breathing his last. Babylon. Then came the Medes and the Persians. Then came ancient Greece. Then came the mighty Babylonian Empire. And the mighty empire of of Rome, sorry, of Rome, the mighty Roman Empire, mighty and strong, yet at its base is mingled with clay, unstable, insecure. And yet this mighty rock, which is Christ, comes and tumbles the whole nations right down to its feet. And this is what we are witnessing through the history of our day today. As nations fall, the church of Jesus Christ maintains its course with their eyes fixed on Christ the Savior. For he, only he, is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wilson says that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the entire earth as the waters cover the sea and each believer is a single drop within that mighty ocean. And each believer forms part of the mighty ocean yet no drop is able to control the ocean itself. But yet, as believers maintain and persevere with their eyes fixed on Christ, the glory of God is filling the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream ends with this rock becoming a great massive mountain that filled the entire earth. So we may not be able to control what's going around us, but we are very much part of what's going. God, who is in control, is changing the course of history to achieve his purposes. Therefore, entrust yourself to the Lord while living a godly life, while living a life filled with hope, and while living a life in joy for the glory and praise of his name. Let us pray.